Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. The Guardian. It started with one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. And fast forward to July 2021, and billionaire after billionaire is jumping on a rocket to try and reach space. Richard Branson flew to the edge of space and declared the dawn of a new space age. His company, Virgin Galactic, is focused on space tourism. Meanwhile, much like cards are traded on a playground, Jeff Bezos is attempting to trade a NASA moon mission contract for two billion US dollars. Back in April, NASA awarded Elon Musk's company SpaceX a $2.9 billion contract to build a spacecraft to bring astronauts to the surface of the moon as early as 2024, and in doing so they rejected a bid from Blue Origin, which is owned by Bezos. Industry experts say that Blue Origin views the possibility of a reversal as unlikely. But how much are billionaires with dreams of being amongst the stars actually contributing to science? From The Guardian, I'm Shivani Dave, and this is Science Weekly. Is space really the final frontier? Or just the final frontier of egos? Robert Massey is the deputy director of the Royal Astronomical Society. Before that, he was researching the Orion Nebula and was a public astronomer at the Royal Observatory Greenwich. Recently, there's been a lot of coverage of what's being called the billionaire space race. Both Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos have completed their own space missions. For you know, the cost of an airline ticket, we, 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 it can be, we can transform things back here on Earth. And, that, and that's what's... Let's talk about them. I'll start with Richard Branson because he was the first one to go up last month. But what was he trying to achieve? Well, the aim of the mission was to demonstrate the viability of Virgin Galactic and to say that he would be able to run this space tourism business that he's been promising really, I think, for about 17 years now. I think that the, for the idea for his first formalized in about 2004. And what he did was a suborbital flight, as indeed uh, Bezos did. So he didn't reach Earth orbit. When people think about space, they they tend to think about astronauts, say, on the space station or people in the shuttle in, in the old days and so on, or, or even the Apollo landings on the moon. With these flights, it's akin to the very first American space shots back in the early 60s, where they took people up into the high atmosphere fairly briefly. Uh, they were weightless at the top of the loop and they crossed the the definition of space, the, the boundary of space depends how you define that actually in this case. It's another thing to, to discuss. And then came back down to Earth. So 
it's not the sort of thing where you think, oh, you know, you go up into space and you do a trip to a destination, you enter some kind of orbiting space hotel and return to uh, Earth. It's nothing like that. It's more like a sort of a quick jaunt up into the the highest part of the Earth's atmosphere and down again. And what about Jeff Bezos? Did did he also cross that boundary going into space? What is that boundary? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the ba- so the boundary is debated now the the international definition that most people use is the Kármán line which is about 100 kilometers up and Richard Branson didn't actually cross that he was somewhat lower but on the US definition he did because they have a, a lower one but um, both uh, Branson and Bezos did similar things the difference was more in the kind of vehicle so Bezos had something which looked a lot more like a conventional rocket it took off from the ground uh, deployed this uh, module at the top which are interesting it actually had huge windows that was the distinct feature for me compared with the other systems and then that came down to earth with uh, eventually with retro rockets near the ground but also with a parachute in the case of Branson what he was doing was a system that uh, is a sort of space plane that takes off on a conventional attached to a conventional plane and then when it gets high enough in the atmosphere that's released and then it fires a rocket engine takes it up higher still up in the atmosphere and then that glides back down to earth so some kind of i guess it, it looks a bit like a kind of cut down shuttle in size and appearance but in, it, those were essentially what the two flights were about branson's is rather longer mainly because it took a lot longer to get up to altitude flying in the plane or having the, the vehicle attached to the plane whereas uh bezos's trip i think lasted for about a total of eight minutes it's quite a short live stream if you watch the whole thing Oh, geez, that's great. Is the lighting halfway decent? Yes, indeed. They've got the flag up now, and you can see the stars and stripes on the lunatic. NASA has been able to make uh, missions go to space. I mean, it's been over 40 years since there was a man on the moon. So why does it seemingly take so long for these billionaires to develop the technology for them to reach the edge of the atmosphere? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a really interesting question. I think, well, it is a very expensive business and a risky one. I mean, one of the things that troubles me about it slightly is people talk about democratizing space as though this is somehow opening up to everyone. I, I think that's a very questionable thing to be saying, given that you are talking about billionaires. And let's not forget that as well as uh, Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, you also have Elon Musk, who's gone a step further than both of them, admittedly with government contracts, which is the the underpinning thing for a lot of this, actually, that uh, he's actually taken people to the space station with his vehicle. He might not have flown himself, but he does have a, a, a space program that he's carrying people into Earth orbit. So I think the answer is that it's an expensive business. In the case of the, say, Virgin Galactic, they were trying to do, they are doing something innovative in the design of the system. It's not reaching Earth orbit. If it was doing that, I think it would be more interesting still, but it would also be vastly more expensive and and you know, we should also remember that a ticket on Virgin Galactic is about $250,000 or so for that, that fairly brief trip to space. But if you want to go to the space station, you're looking at tens of millions of dollars. And that space tourism thing was actually done quite a long time ago, back in the early 2000s with people like Dennis Tito, who paid, I think, $12 million. The price has gone up since to go to the ISS, the International Space Station, on a Russian Soyuz rocket. But what about space more in general in space exploration, I've always been massively inspired by it, the idea of learning more and more about our universe. So this might seem like a little bit of a flippant question, but it's not meant to be. Because besides advancing academic understanding, what are we actually learning from studying things like the moon, the stars, the planets? 
what's the point of anyone going into space? I mean, that's a distinction between, say, space exploration and the science of astronomy and actually space science in general. I mean, I I understand you know, there is a reasonably compelling case for putting humans in orbit and on other planets to do science there in a rope because they're more flexible and capable than the robots and so on. But of course, there's a, a concomitant risk that goes with that. However, in terms of astronomy itself, well, the answer is that studying the wider universe often tells us a, a lot about things on Earth as well. I mean, the well, taking a historical example, we discovered helium in the sun. You know, it's it's those kind of things that help shape things here as well. The techniques we use in astronomy have wider applications in a big way on the ground. I mean, for example, in getting the most out of images, that's been used in medicine to in a big way, and the different scanners and detectors handling large-scale data and so on. Uh, you can also do things like apply those to security applications. So there's a spin-out company that developed uh, so-called terahertz images. These are those airport scanners that you go through where people worried that they were sort of seeing their, their silhouette on them and so on. That was based on astronomical technology, or at least astronomers took the technology and applied it. But I think you can get a bit too hung up on the spin-out stuff as well in the sense that actually it's the inspiration that comes from it as well. The idea of pushing ourselves to understand things about the wider universe encourages us to apply those techniques and thinking to other things as well. It helps us understand the evolution of our own planet. When you look at, say, Mars or Venus, you have worlds that are not radically dissimilar in size to the Earth. I mean, Mars is somewhat smaller, but their position with respect to the Sun led to completely different outcomes. And Venus was uh, used to some extent as a model for what happens if you have a very rich carbon dioxide atmosphere, which feeds into the climate emergency and global heating. Uh, Mars, on the other hand, shows you what happens you know, when you don't have a magnetic field, when you have a very thin atmosphere, and how it, how it uh, took a very different path. So I think looking at other worlds tells us something about the evolutionary history of the Earth. It tells us about the different paths our planet could have taken. And when you look at, say, the fossil record on a place like the Moon, it also tells us something about our geological history as well. It says, well, early on in the history of the solar system, there were a lot more uh, meteorite impacts, for example, than there are today. So all of those things help us to piece together uh, where we came from. Now, I'm not suggesting that that necessarily feeds into the development of life initially, but it does say, well, there are reasons why the Earth is such a, a clement place, such a great place for life to thrive. And as we look out into the wider universe and we try and find similar habitats elsewhere, because one of the big questions or for, for astronomers, but I suspect for everybody, is are we alone in the universe? We're struck by the fact that this is a very, very rare setup, that it's a, it's a real struggle, at least, for advanced life to thrive. And we don't you know, despite uh, big searches of planets around other stars, we haven't found more than a handful of candidates that might be able to support that. And even those, even those candidates, it's not actually clear that they can. So we should be, I think, respectful of the planet we live on for that reason. Perhaps looking out into the wider universe helps us with that perspective. Okay, so let's have a look at some of the long-term goals then that some of these billionaires might have for space exploration. This is a huge step for us. It's a huge step for the commercial ventures. And I think it's important for the world to realize that we're going into space to stay. And we're going to continue on to then the moon and then on to Mars. As you mentioned, back in April, 
NASA awarded Elon Musk's company SpaceX a $2.9 billion contract to build a spacecraft which would bring astronauts to the surface of the moon as early as 2024. What I want to know about this is why do they want to go back to the moon and why would NASA partner up with Elon Musk? They've clearly done this before, so they have the technology to do it. It's a good question, and the answer lies in the fact that NASA, although NASA is pursuing their own system called the Space Launch System, and they're doing some of that in partnership with the European Space Agency as it happens, progress on that has been fairly slow. But I think the answer to the question about why go back to the moon is, well, from a scientific perspective, there is a lot of science to be done. We only had six landings, and they were in you know in very small sites on on a world which has a surface area the size of Africa so there's a lot more of it to explore there are things like you know you could go up to the po- the south pole of the moon where we think there's water ice buried in the, the soil there in large quantities use that to set up a self-sustaining base uh if you site it right there are places down there as well near the south pole of the moon where you've got almost eternal light so you could have solar power there to power a base too um the moon has two other in roles that interest me in this one is that it's a good platform for observing the wider universe it's you know completely outside of the earth's atmosphere that's that's quite a grand long-term one to think about but if you for example put a radio telescope on the far side you could escape all the terrestrial interference and you know for example we don't know we haven't got many samples from say drilling down into the lunar surface you know we collected the Apollo missions collected a lot of rocks but they were basically the stuff that was lying about on the surface we haven't actually tried to uh, look beneath that so there are a good number of reasons for for going there and, and a lot of good science that could be done what would you say you're most looking forward to when it comes to space either with the research or the exploration is there something big that you feel like we are on the precipice of uncovering yeah, you know, I think I think it has to be answering the question about whether, at least for the stars that are not too far away from us, there are Earth-like planets around them. Now, that might not mean planets that currently have life on them, but candidate planets, if we get the technology, the telescope set up in the near future, the space missions, and by that I mean orbiting observatories like the, the uh, Webb telescope that's due to launch this autumn, that can look at those worlds, can analyze the life in them and start to answer that question obviously if we find life it's paradigm shifting and it is true that we will see many more you know innovative missions in low earth orbit and we'll see people going back to the moon and those will be exciting things i mean you know whatever your feelings about where the money should be spent on this stuff and i know it's a matter of huge debate i think when we see astronauts again exploring or setting up some kind of antarctic like scientific base on the moon that will be an exciting thing and i you know i'm certainly looking forward to that whatever i've expressed in this interview about the you know the reservations i have about the role of the super rich in this i think actually that that will be an exciting thing and you know who wouldn't be excited about something like that it's a it'll be a phenomenal thing to see i totally agree i think you know no matter where the money is coming from or what what research is being done space and space exploration is something that's always going to be fascinating to a little physics nerd like me thank you so much for your time robert it's a pleasure thank you science weekly will be back on thursday if you've got any thoughts feedback or episode ideas drop us a message at scienceweekly at theguardian.com bye for now For more great podcasts from The Guardian, 
Just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.